on Journo, someone I actually felt sorry for during the 2016 presidential campaign between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But this is a man who has called women pigs, slobs, and dogs. So she's got experience, that I agree, but it's bad, bad experience. You know. I recognise his byline from my days covering Australia when he worked in the Canberra Press Gallery writing for the Sydney Morning Herald. But now he was in America and working for a publication called The Hill, which was read by Washington insiders, but a small-scale outlet compared to, say, The New York Times or Politico. Please welcome the next president of the United States, Mr. Donald J. Trump. Rather than getting on the campaign trail, his beat was campaign finance. And I remember thinking at the time he was missing out on the thrill of, of that fabled road to the White House. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? <laughs> and he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. But I suspect what he did was follow the money. And that brought him into contact with many of the power brokers in American politics and ultimately gave him an in with Donald Trump. His name is Jonathan Swan. And I think you can make the argument that he's not just the most influential Australian journalist in Washington, he's the most influential Australian journalist in the world. I'm Nick Bryant, and this is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. We're taking a closer look at how news is made, how news is disseminated, how news is consumed, and the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities facing our industry. Jonathan, I mean, looking back, I often think how ironic it was that I thought you got a bit of a bum deal in 2016. Your focus was on campaign finance. Did you think that at the time or did you see it as this huge opportunity? You followed the money and following the money in American politics takes you into the rooms where it happens. Yeah, I mean, so that was uh, my first reporting job in the US in 2015 was at the Hill newspaper, which is a small Beltway publication. And my beat was campaign finance, but I saw it as a terrific opportunity because so much of the power in American politics runs through the money and the donors. So what I did in that campaign cycle, at least initially, was I basically pulled up the spreadsheets online, the databases of all the donors, the big donors, and sort of categorized them by how much they were spending on each candidate. And I just methodically reached out to pretty much every single one of them. And, you know, you have a pretty small hit rate, but you get enough of them if you're relentless enough. And these are people who um, have direct relationships with the candidates who are not involved in the formal staff structure. So they're getting direct information from the candidate. You can basically cut around. I'm always looking for ways that I can get around the hierarchy inside organizations. And that, that was just such a perfect way to do it and an efficient way to do it. And that was really my first reporting beat in the US. Now, it wasn't as if your work was going unnoticed, but The Hill, outside of Washington, it's not the New York Times, it's not 
the Washington Post. But, you know, presumably you got the in with some of the real big power brokers. I mean, my hunch always was that you maybe had met the Mercers, you know, Robert Mercer, Rebecca Mercer, big backers of Donald Trump. And that was opening a door for you. Well, no, they're they're a small publication, but at the time, all I had on my resume was the Sydney Morning Herald, and no one gives a shit about the Sydney Morning Herald in America. Uh, No one knows who they are, really, or the Fairfax or whatever. You can do whatever kind of reporting you want to do in Australia, and that doesn't make them want to hire you. You're only as good as your American sources. So I met with lots of different publications when I was in the US when I arrived in 2014, and no one wanted to hire me, and fair enough. I, I wouldn't have hired me, probably. And thank God for Bob Cusack at The Hill who gave me the job and, and gave me a chance. And my view was always all you need is your foot in the door somewhere, and you know if you're willing to work as hard as I am willing to work, you're going to get stories. Politico actually identified you as one of the breakout stars of 2016. You then joined a new news organization, a startup called Axios. And your early reporting on the Trump White House really started making a name for you and helped make a name for Axios. You started coming up with, with scoop after scoop. Um, basically, I just work like an animal. And I had the benefit of Trump had a very small circle, frankly, and they weren't the usual operatives. So I actually came in to cover that White House on a level ground with every other reporter, which would not have been the case if if Hillary Clinton was the president. I would have been 20 years behind in sourcing behind many of the best reporters here. But with Trump, I wasn't. I could actually compete on a level playing field. And then it's a matter of who can hustle more than anyone else. And, you know, I've always had this view that I'm not smarter than anyone. In fact, I'm dumber than many and certainly not more talented, but I had the view no one's going to outwork me on this beat. And so you just got to make more phone calls and do more source meetings. And that's what I did. That that first two years of Trump, three years of Trump, it just worked like an animal, almost killed myself. <laughs> and uh, I was actually kind of by the end of it, Uh, kind of a corpse, actually, by the end of the Trump administration, just felt like I'd aged about 50 years and was ready to cark it. Now, I remember speaking to one of your mentors here in Australia, and and she told me something really interesting. She basically said, whenever you're feeling tired at about nine o'clock in the evening, you've still got a couple more hours of work to do. You've still got a couple more hours of calls to make. Sounds like you've been talking to Pam Williams. Exactly, I have. And she sounded like an Aussie swimming coach almost. You know, get back in that pool and swim a few more laps. But it sounds like you heeded that advice. Yeah, she, like, she drives me pretty hard. Oh, man, I'll probably get emotional talking about Pam. She's like she's like done everything for me. She, I wouldn't have the career I've had without her. Besides my dad, she's the singular figure who's built me as a reporter. And I remember I reached out to her when I first arrived at the Sydney Morning Herald as a trainee reporter. And I reached out to her for coffee and she met for me at coffee. And ever since then, she's helped me, but really coached me in some respects and helped me think through tactics and strategies, source building, and also kind of She's a very careful reporter who talks about building a structure around you, especially when you're at a startup that's moving very fast, doesn't have many staff at least to start off with. You have to erect your own guardrails to some extent. 
and it's it's very challenging. And anyway, she's been throughout the last ten years just an outsized influence on my reporting. And you mentioned your dad there. Your dad is very well known in Australia, Norman Swan, uh, a doctor turned broadcaster who's been very prominent in uh, the COVID response in Australia. Jonathan, I remember bumping into you at the White House one day. It was just before Donald Trump announced that America was going to be withdrawn from the Paris Climate Change Accord. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. And although he tried to create a lot of drama around that announcement in the way that he always did, you know, the reality TV show approach to announcements like that. I promised I would exit or renegotiate any deal which fails to serve America's interests. We were pretty confident that he was going to withdraw because you had actually broken the story the night before. And by that stage, a Swan exclusive, a Swan scoop had become bankable. I wonder what you remember of, of that day. Were you nervous that you might change his mind or were you pretty sure that you'd got it right? That was the problem with reporting on Trump was <laughs> in a normal universe, a president doesn't really reverse, or they, they can reverse a decision, but it's gone through a policy process. It's gone through, you know, deputies committees, principal committees. There's been a discussion at the cabinet level. You know, paper has gone to the president. He's deliberated. He's made his decision. He's announced his decision. Trump was, it was always possible that he would reverse a decision up until the point he would announce it and even after that point. So with the Paris Accord, it was really excruciating because I broke that story and then everyone started to, a lot of, uh, not everyone, I shouldn't be so sweeping, but some of my competitors start to kind of raise doubts about that. And the problem I had was, okay, I know Trump has told his inner circle that that's what he's doing. I know they are, they've written a speech in which he's going to announce that. I know they've set up the event at which he's going to unveil it. So that's a pretty good set of ingredients to say, yeah, he's decided to do this. But the problem is it's Trump. And so, yeah, there was a part of me that was like, good Lord, even though I'm confident in this reporting that I've done, I might look like a complete jackass, you know, in 12 hours. So, yeah. I mean, that was a very small example of that, but that was the general feel that you had throughout the administration. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. I want to talk to you about interviewing Donald Trump. I did it before he became president in Trump Tower. What struck me was how charming he was. It was the days when he really did enjoy the company of journalists. He he was almost obsequious. I mean, I was working with the BBC at the time. It was almost as if he regarded the BBC as an offshoot of the the British monarchy. He was so (laughs) polite. But interviewing him as president at a time when he was hostile with the press was a very different story. And interviewing a president at any time is a fascinating experience. I just wonder whether you give us a sort of behind-the-scenes glimpse of how that process works. Well, I interviewed him twice for television in his presidency, and the first interview was pretty bad, and the second interview was immodestly pretty good. And they were spaced apart by roughly two years. And the problem with the first one, which was, from memory, October 2018, it was... (laughs) 
it sounds crazy, but it's true. It was the first time I'd ever done a television interview. I mean, I'd be obviously been on TV a million times on panels and whatever, but I'd never actually done a TV interview. And my first one is the president of the United States. Not ideal as a sort of practice round to do it with the president of the United States. And the problem I had with that interview was I was a print reporter, right? So I was used to talking to sources in a certain way. And, you know, you're often coaxing, you know, use all, you know, you're pushing, you're pulling. It's pretty ugly actually sometimes when you're just trying to get a source to tell you stuff. And so that was sort of almost my mode. And I had this piece of reporting that was basically I had a single source for this piece of report, a very good source, but I could never get the second source, never confirm it. And it was that Trump was just relentlessly asking his counsel's team to come up with an executive order to abolish birthright citizenship. I just thought it was a very last minute decision thing. I'm just going to ask him, see what he says. And he confirmed it on the spot. Some legal scholars believe you can get rid of birthright citizenship without changing the constitution. With an executive order. Exactly. Right. Uh, have you thought about that? Yes. Tell me more. That's, That's a exactly very interesting question. I didn't think anybody but knew that but me. I thought I was the only one. Jonathan, I've got I'm a good impressed. guess. And I sort of had this like shit-eating grin, which was captured for uh, you know what seemed like an eternity on camera, and it was read by many as me being giddy or excited about the policy itself and sycophantic and all of those things. I wasn't well armed with like pushback. He said stuff that was wrong and I sort of let it go and didn't have the facts at my command to, to push back. And um, anyway, it, it was really on a personal level, very unpleasant because I got shredded for it. And honestly, rightly so, basically. <laughs> it looked like you were reading Donald Trump's mind. He was he was shocked and surprised that you knew this birthright citizenship is the automatic right of anybody who is born on American soil to have citizenship. Donald Trump was thinking of revoking that. And after the interview, you actually took the step of, of apologising to your colleagues in an email. You, you wrote that, I wish I could redo that moment. Yeah, because, w- <laughs> look... In many cases, I'm the most public face, but there are many people who work behind the scenes who are not public but may feel that I've brought shame or or whatever upon the company. And I really felt at that moment like I'd let everyone down. I felt like I'd really screwed up. And so I apologized. I felt like I'd sort of harmed a lot of the good work that my colleagues had been doing in that moment. And I resolved that if I'm going to be doing these interviews, that I'm actually going to approach them with the deliberation and the seriousness and the preparation that I approach every other part of my reporting. And so I really kind of plunged in and almost made a study, or I did make a study of of that craft of television interviewing. Was it a kind of Icarus moment? Did you think that you'd been flying a little bit too close to the sun? Not really, because I, I I suppose in one sense, yes, because it's kind of crazy that the first TV interview I did was with the president. That's probably not normal or reasonable. And in that sense, I guess, yes. But it was a mistake that I, I, I thought really heavily about all the different components of, of that interview and why I wasn't happy with it. And it was a mistake that I thought was actually quite easily corrected. So I set about really 
deliberately thinking through each of the, you know, I've done probably, gosh, I don't know how many interviews I've done since then, but a lot, right? A lot of TV interviews. And no matter how big or small the person is I'm interviewing, I, I prepare in a really fastidious way. It's like I touched the, the world's hottest stove on my first one and that leaves a mark. It really leaves a mark and it sticks with you. You adopted a very different approach in your second interview with Donald Trump. You found yourself in the midst of a Twitter storm, not an acid shower of criticism. It was a kind of blizzard of praise because you decided to fact check Donald Trump in real time. Uh, just describe what happened for us. Well, I'd, I'd done a series of interviews where between the first one and, and that one in the summer of 2020, in which I think each one I sort of was developing those skills as a TV interviewer and thinking about interviews as lines of questioning in which you really have the facts at your command. You know why you're asking a question. It's for a particular purpose, to get information, to hold someone accountable. And you've thought through where a, a line of conversation is going to go so that you're not sitting there like a moron after the first question and they've made an answer and you sort of look like a stunned mullet, you know, thinking through what's what, what might they say and what might I say back and really thinking that through carefully. So I'd, I'd done that with, you know, a number of people, including Jared Kushner and the Chinese ambassador to the US and president of Iraq and various other people. So I felt much better prepared. I knew him a lot better by that point. I'd watched a lot of tape of him. I knew the policies really well that I was asking about. And I actually tonally was not that different. I was very professional and polite. And I wasn't actually coming in like fists flying and how dare you, sir, and whatever. It wasn't my goal to do that at all. My goal was to very professionally and politely hold the president much. accountable, which is your job. We would have lost millions of people. And those people that really understand it, they really understand it. They said it's incredible the job that we've done. And again, I bring it who, up. Who the says ban, that? The ban, banning China from coming in. But it was already earlier. it was already in here. By the time, it was already here. Like by the time you banned China, it, it came in through you. Nobody knew the extent. Nobody knew how contagious I'm not, it I'm not, was. But the question is, Mr. President, Maybe China. Knew. By June, we knew things were bad and. You know, the last time I was with you was the, the day before your Tulsa rally in the Oval. And, you know, you were saying big, huge crowd, it was indoors. By the way... These people, they listen to you. Big, excuse me, Jeff. Yeah. We had a and the second interview went, you know, better than I could have hoped it to go, but my motivations and intentions were exactly the same. You know, as the first one, I was just... The first one, I was completely inexperienced and screwed up. I hadn't you know, my character hadn't changed in the two years intervening or my motivations or my values. I just, you know, gotten a little bit better at this very unusual craft, which is totally different from print journalism and really <laughs> going from interviewing people on telephone or in person for print to television. It's just, it is night and day. And it took me a while to kind of get my head around that. We have tested more people than any other country, than all of Europe put together times two. We have tested more people than anybody ever thought of. And, you know, there are those that say, 
You can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? Oh, just read Who? the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the what books. Manuals? Read the books. What books? What tests? A lot of people felt at the time that towards an office where journalists are often maybe excessively deferential. I mean, White House reporters actually stand up whenever the president walks into a room. There was this feeling that you hadn't shown that deference and that was lauded, the fact that you had fact-checked Donald Trump in real time. You were astonished at the evidence that he was putting towards you. I know you're smiling when I say no, that. No, but, but come on, I mean, I've no. heard you say Your facial that. expressions launched a million memes. But people applauded the fact that you'd given him a harder time, and perhaps you'd given him a harder time because you're an outsider. You weren't an American. You're an Aussie. I mean, I, all I know is I didn't think about it like that. I, I really was just focused on the substance of the questioning and... I'd done so much preparation that it liberated me to be, you know, to use a sort of self-help cliche, in the moment, actually listening to him and responding and not looking at my script, what's my next question, but actually having a conversation. You know, it's funny, I remember Mike Wallace who used to anchor 60 Minutes and was a great television interviewer. He said what he would try to establish with anyone he interviewed, doesn't matter who they are for president or anyone, a chemistry of confidentiality. And it was this moment where you've made clear to the person that you've done the research, you've done the work, and you're here, and you've got this crew, and so why don't we just sit down and have a conversation and talk to each other? And that's not completely possible with Trump, but I actually kind of weirdly think that was more of a conversation with him than you could probably ever get. And, you know, I was ready. To, the key moment that went completely viral was when he was handing me those charts. Let's look. Daily death. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd okay. love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death, yeah, it started to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world? lower than what is that? Europe. In what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the US is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't you can't do that. You have Why to go, can't I do that? you have to go by because I mean, of the testing. Wait. A thousand Americans are dying a day, but I understand I understand on cases it's different. No, but you're not reporting it correctly, Jonathan. I think I am, but... If you take a look at this other chart... I was ready to move... I, look, if you actually watch the tape, I was trying to move on to the next section, and then he pulls out these papers, and you've got to be willing to go with that. You, you can't just stick to your script. You've got to be willing to go off script and take this... You know, he's handing me these things. I didn't know what the hell they were, and I was looking at them, and there were these bar charts and sort of whatever. And all these facial expressions, I wasn't hamming it up. I, you know, I was literally trying in real time to understand what the hell he was handing to me and what, what on earth these things were. It, what, him trying to tell me that the US was the best in the world for COVID deaths. I was like, give me a break. And then I realized what he was, it was a sort of very tortured manipulation of the statistics. So once I figured it out, okay, there, then we can move on. Anyway, Mr. President, if I could change subject. It is going down in Arizona. It Arizona is. it is. But Arizona it's is. only preparation that allows you to do that. If you're not well prepared, you become much more wedded to the script and it's just a, a much inferior interview. And, and you do see those types of interviews a lot. And I've done some of them because I haven't done the sufficient preparation. They're, they're not very interesting to watch. 
Mr. President, you've been so generous with your time, and we really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank very you. Much. Great honor. Thank, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. My understanding Thanks, is that Trump actually thought that interview had gone very well. It was only <laughs> afterwards that he saw the reaction on Twitter and had a very different take. Yeah, it's probably it's probably about right. Yeah, he, he straight after it, he did think it was um, it was good, and he did say to me afterwards that he had he just had one request, which was, "Don't edit me too much and let my sentences flow." And I said, "Mr. President." We will, we will do just that. And we did. And then, yeah, his views might have changed somewhat, you know, a week later, but I'm not going to get too much into that. Well, he did call you something, didn't he? And it was it was made known to you what how he described you. Yeah, I'm not going to... Uh, he called yeah. you a little shit, I think, didn't he? <laughs> it's possible. What, sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question That's like that. That's not a nasty Please question. Please go ahead. Why does it matter? Okay, uh, anybody else? Please, go ahead in the back, please. I have, to, I have two questions. No, it's okay. But we'll you pointed to me. I have two questions, Mr. Next. President. Next, next, please. But you, did, you called on me. I did, and you didn't respond, and now I'm calling on... Sorry, I just want the to young lady in the back, please. I just wanted to let my colleague okay. finish, but can I ask you Ladies and gentlemen, please? thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Now, a lot of reporters during the Trump years made their names in press conferences by taking Trump on in a kind of quite an aggressive way. Other people were very snarky on Twitter. They build up Twitter followerships that way. It struck me that you took a different path. Did you deliberately do that. It seemed that you weren't as confrontational as some. You didn't go to those set-piece press conferences. You didn't tackle Trump in those arenas. Was that a deliberate decision? It was more of a an Axios resources decision, which is that when you have a really lean team, which we did, I mean, for the first year of Axios, we were, like, small. I mean, we now have at the end of this year, we're going to have 400 staff or something. We're growing like crazy. But that first year, we were very small. And so there's a question of when you only have one person covering the White House, literally, I was the only person covering the White House, is it the best use of my time to be in a room with 50 other reporters? When they're going to ask smart questions, they're going to hold the administration to account and all of that. Or should I be using that time trying to get original stories on the phone, whatever? When you're a big publication, you can do both. You can send someone to the White House and you can have people doing enterprise reporting. We didn't have that luxury at the start. So it was actually more born out of that than any particular, I'm going to be this kind of a reporter or that kind of reporter. I can only be the reporter that I am naturally. I've always been basically the same. Like Whether people perceive that or not, my ethics and approach as a reporter hasn't really changed at all whether it be in Australia or here. It's probably true. I probably haven't been as uh, publicly confrontational as, as some, and people have different styles. I think there's a place for both styles, by the way. I, I don't disdain people who do the more theatrical kind of, because I do think it sometimes elicits interesting responses and information and things like that. There are, There's a sort of cottage industry of making fun of those people. I, I, I don't really participate in that because I've actually seen some really valuable stuff come out of those moments. I think it can be a bit over the top sometimes, but there's a, definitely a place for it. And there's a long history of it as well. 
Well, you talk about the history, and that fascinates me. I mean, in the early 60s, White House correspondents were very pally with the president. Ben Bradley, who became the editor of the Washington Post, of course, uh, was JFK's best friend. That's true. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I mean, on the night of one Democratic primary, in West Virginia in 1960, they actually watched a porn movie together while they were waiting for the results to come out. And then then in the 1970s... I didn't know that. Yeah, I know, it's extraordinary. I mean, Ben Bradley tells this story himself. Then in the 1970s, you get Watergate, and it seemed to me after that, everybody turned up in Washington wanting to be the next Woodward or Bernstein. They saw their role as sort of taking down the president. I have never been a quitter to leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. I wonder where you America see your reporting fitting within that spectrum. That's a good question. I think if you just looked at it objectively, there's no story that I reported during the Trump years that ever threatened to take down his presidency. So, I mean, that's pretty obvious. I'd be lying if I suggested otherwise. And it wasn't through lack of trying to find um, things to hold him accountable, but it's just a plain fact. I probably, certainly in the early days, did a bit too much of sort of announcing the announcement before it happened, and that's fine. I So I'll take it, right? Who's he going to appoint as this position or whatever? But really, ultimately, who gives a shit? Because if it's something that's going to come out anyway, you're okay, fine, you, you, you beat, you know, the AP by two hours. Who cares? The stuff I'm more proud of is stuff that I think may not have come out or certainly may not have come out in real time without my reporting. For this series, I talked to a range of senior West Wing officials, senior administration officials, senior campaign officials, and close personal advisors to the president. I did a series in the final days of Trump, a 10-part series, which was really some of the best reporting I've ever done. It was reporting in real time Trump's efforts to overthrow the election and what was happening behind the scenes. I'll take you inside the president's living quarters, inside Air Force One, inside the Oval Office for some of the most consequential meetings. And I didn't wait. I got it out in real time. And It was just one story after the other. And I think it painted a picture for the public of what was going on at this really tense and perilous moment in American history. never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft I want to talk about January the 6th. Many people regard this as a watershed moment for American journalism. The neutral voice, they would suggest, is no more. You have a situation now in America where one party, the Democrats, is wholly committed to democracy and the other party that's now dominated by Donald Trump, the Republican Party, is partially committed to democracy. And reporting has to reflect that. Reporters have to say that. Reporters have to underscore how much US democracy 
is in peril. Do you agree with that approach or do you think that journalism should still have that neutral voice? Look, I don't know that a neutral voice is ever attainable. I don't know that I've reported with a neutral voice. Uh, That series I just mentioned to you before that covered these events, I don't think that was a particularly neutral voice. It was pretty clearly critical would be a mild word of what the president was doing and what he was trying to do. And so I just think that it's a bit of a, a fantasy that you can be this perfectly sterile, split the difference, neutral arbiter. I think it was always phony. I think you should always strive for objectivity. And I think the main thing is as well is not to lose sight of, like, one thing I do think when some of this conversation becomes a bit asinine is you do need to talk to the other side of any conversation. I mean, not the science of climate change, which I don't, you know, I don't do climate reporting. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that everything has two sides, but it is useful anyway as a reporting exercise to be talking to the other side. And I think there's a danger in becoming so morally pristine that you refuse to talk to people who are in power or surrounding a powerful person because you always learn more. You may not think it's true and you may say that it's false, but you always learn more. You always get a richer picture of things to understand their motivations and what they're thinking and what they're doing. And you might even find actually here's a wrinkle in what I assume to be the gospel that you were hearing from the other camp. So I don't know if that answers your question, but my view is, yes, with issues where it's pretty clear, like the president lost the election, he pretended he won the election, he tried to overturn the election, and that was thoroughly undemocratic. Those are all stone-cold facts. I don't know whether that's a neutral voice in which I just dictated that to you, but like those things happened. And if you're too scared to say what happened, then you should find another career. You should be a PR executive or, or something else because you shouldn't be a journalist. But you also should, for everything, test your own assumptions, question your own assumptions, wonder if you've been marinating too deeply in centre-left groupthink and liberal groupthink and whether there might actually be some valid points from the other side. So that's my general kind of approach. And again, I, I don't have a sort of sweeping system It's very case by case and questioning my motives, questioning my facts and trying to prove what I've got wrong actually before I report it. It's thinking how could what I've said or what I think I know be wrong and try to do that work before you put it out there in public because someone else is sure as heck going to do that work. We had the ability to test because we came up with tests. South Korea... Jonathan, we weren't even... We didn't even have a test. When I took over, we didn't even have a test. Now, in all fairness... Why would you have a test? There was no test The virus didn't exist. How would you have a test? Jonathan Swan is a phenomenon, but so much of his success comes from following some really basic journalistic principles, practices and processes to build a network of contacts, to work that network, not just hard, but tirelessly to be honest, decent, scrupulously fair. 
like all good journos, he understands that you never stop learning your craft. And that's helped him, I think, as he's moved from reporting and writing into broadcasting and interviewing. From a teenage copy boy at the Sydney Morning Herald to a show on HBO, he's been his own author of a remarkable professional story. Jonathan, has fatherhood slowed you down? Are you still making those calls at nine o'clock at night? Are you still leaping back in the <laughs> pool to, to swim a few more laps before you go to bed? It's definitely uh, difficult. Um, I'm trying to figure... I still haven't, like, figured out how to... be nice if I was more talented and then I could not work as hard and still do good stuff, but when you orient your whole life around work and then suddenly you've got to not have your whole life around work, it's... Uh, it's definitely an adjustment, and I haven't figured it out yet, frankly. But I, I don't want to be uh, an absent father. Jenna is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast in your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Deadset Studios' executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithhurst and Nicole Kirby, with sound design by John Shear. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. The commissioning editor for JNI is Andrea Ho. I'm Nick Bryan, and coming up on Journo, have we, the media, got it right when covering elections? Are we in touch with what our audiences want to know during a campaign? Or are we too obsessed with covering the horse race, the leadership, thrills and spills? Journalists love to teach the audience. And... It leads to this game where, you know, you see it during those leadership spills where the journalists race to get the first numbers from inside the lockup. And some of them are, are so willing to get it done so quickly that they will get errant numbers or the numbers will be wrong. And it happened in everyone I can remember recently. We are not serving the public in that race. We are serving our own egos. And I think that is the problem. 